in this sermon series on the book of Genesis, today and next Sunday, we are asking this question. What crucial truths do we find about men and women in the first three chapters of Genesis, specifically in the passage that Pastor Curtis just read, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25? Let me say that again. What crucial truths about men and women, or manhood and womanhood, do we find in the first three chapters of Genesis, specifically chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. If this is the Word of God, and it is, if this is the Word of God, then it is our greatest source of objective truth. That's the presupposition that I have when I come to every sermon, preparing it and giving it. This is the Word of God, and therefore it is the greatest source we have in objective truth. Uh, Many people today don't even believe anymore in objective truth or absolute truth. We do believe there's absolute truth, there's objective truth. If the one who made us and created us and defines all reality reveals himself to us. Apart from that, no. But God does reveal himself in the most important way that he reveals himself. Or I should say, um, the most conclusive way that he reveals himself, the clearest place he reveals himself is through his written word. So we believe this is God's word. Therefore, it is the source of objective truth for us. Now, if this word from God... The Bible, if this word from God addresses manhood and womanhood, and it does, uh, extensively, if this book addresses manhood and womanhood, then it becomes our greatest source of objective truth regarding gender, regarding an understanding of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, uh, what it means for men and women to relate to one another and relate with one another. So this book is our ultimate source in understanding manhood and womanhood or masculinity and femininity. Again, not history, uh, not experience, not culture, which is something that we make, but what God has defined in his book. And what we find What we find in this passage in particular is that the Bible has a lot to say. That God has a lot to say about masculinity and femininity, about manhood and about womanhood. In the New Testament, the New Testament of our Bible, um, whenever New Testament authors like Jesus and like Paul, whenever they're talking about men and women and what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, this is their go-to passage. Okay, they quote from Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, specifically chapter 2, verse 24, which we just heard read to us. In the New Testament, every single author either quotes from or alludes to the book of Genesis. There are 103 references to Genesis 1 through 11 in the New Testament. So I say all that so that you understand why in this sermon series at the, in the book of Genesis, we are pulling pulling out truths about manhood and womanhood. Because even though in the New Testament you have a a more full disclosure of, of these truths, you have the root of them 
and the foundation of them. In fact, the beginnings of the revelation of these truths right here in Genesis chapter 2. So today and next week, we're going to look at 2, 18 through 25. Uh, going to give some general truths to start us off um, in regards to men and women. And then we'd like specifically to look today at men, the masculinity, and then look specifically next Sunday at women and femininity. Let's see what the Bible teaches. We'll start in Genesis 2, and then we'll bring alongside the New Testament passage, uh, Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25. And that will complement well as it gives even more disclosure about what it means to be a man, specifically what it means to be a husband, a head of a household, and to lead our wives and families well. So let's pray. We'll get started together. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for all these faces that I look out and see. Um, Some that I I, I know, some I don't know, some I've known for a long time, um, some I hope to get to know. God, I thank you that you've brought them all here. I thank you that you've, you've carved out some time for us to do not the most important thing we could ever do, to open up your word. God, we all want to know truth. We all are looking for that. We want to know what reality is. We want to know what the meaning and purpose is of our lives. We want, to, we want direction. We want something to uh, close our teeth on. We want something to hold on to. And so, God, we're thankful that we have your word, that you haven't left us in dark, but that you've given us a lamp unto our feet. So we pray that we would read it well, that we would understand it well, and that we would apply it well. And as you and us both know, we need your Holy Spirit in order to do that. So we thank you for being here, and we we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask that your Holy Spirit would would go between uh, my words and the ears of everyone here, and that your truth... And your word and with, uh, with your conviction and with your application, that that would come across and it would ring clearly in, in all of our ears, minds and hearts today, that we would be changed because of your word. We hope for this and we pray for this and we do it with great expectation and hoping for great power because we pray this in the name of your son whose name is Jesus the Christ. Amen. So if you have a Bible, please open it up. If you don't have a Bible, grab one. You should have one in front of you, one of those white Bibles. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. This is what we looked at last week. So if you, if you weren't here last week, you, you get two for one today. It's a great deal. Here's a little recap on what we, we, we saw. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God says something very uh, dramatic that stands out in this account of his creation. Because God, as you would expect in chapter 1, everything that he makes is good. And in fact, at the end of chapter 1, verse 31, God gives his commentary on everything that he's, he has made in those six days. And he looked and he said, it is all very good. So it's good, day one, it's good, 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 good. And then at the end, he says, it's very good. But now Genesis chapter 2 is zooming in on the afternoon of day 6 when God creates the man. And here in verse 18 of chapter 2, God gives a commentary that tells us that on the way to everything being very good, there was a point at which there was something not good in God's creation. 
And he said, as he looked down at the man, it is not good for the man to be alone. So what God sees as not good then and now, what God sees as incomplete then and now is a man without a woman. The second half of verse 18 is God's uh, solution to that problem. I will make him a helper suitable. And so God makes Eve. And all good wives today are helpers to their husbands. They're a blessing to their husbands. That's why the word says that he who finds this kind of a wife finds a good thing. That's why it says that she is uh, precious like a jewel. That's why Proverbs 31 says this is a woman who does her husband good and she does not do him harm. So God looks and says, man, it is not good for you to be alone. You need help. The implication for us men today is that we need help. Okay, I remember when I was younger, I turned 36 about a week and a half ago. My body's hurting in some weird and different ways. But I remember when I was younger, and I remember when I was single, I remember actually having the thought that I am just fine alone. And it wasn't until later, until I got married, that I realized it was not good for me to be alone. It was a train wreck. That's God's, that's what's in between a lot. It is a train wreck for Adam to be alone. And it was for me too. I am in need of help. Men, you are in need of help. Lord willing, he brings you a helper suitable. He did it for Adam. And he makes this woman and presents her to Adam. God walks her down the aisle at the wedding. And he marries her to her husband, Adam. Adam looks at her. He sees her. And he writes a poem on the spot. Guys, this is good stuff. He writes a poem. He, the first time he sees his wife, he's very careful with what he says. And the words that come out of his mouth are poetic. There's actually a rhyme here in the Hebrew, though it doesn't sound quite as romantic in, when translated into modern English. But he said this, right? This is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So he presents this woman to this man. This is your companion. This is your wife. This is your friend. Before there's any mention even of children, of procreation, of that great and glorious purpose in marriage, before any of that, there is one man and one woman. There is a husband and a wife. This is what God intends. They are enjoying one another. They are loving one another. They are committed to one another. They are are laughing with one another. They are helping one another. They are honoring God together. So Matthew Henry, right, in his commentary, talking about this woman being created from the rib, from the side of Adam, said, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam. Not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. So, men, you put your arm around your wife. Okay, that is exactly where she belongs. That's why it feels good, right? Husbands, that feels good. Good. Wives, that should feel good. This is where you belong. Protected, loved, cared for by your husband. Now, before you came along, it was just him in a chair with his arm, nothing there. Wasn't good. Wasn't good. Okay, you completed him. All right, you fulfilled something in him. He was not good until you came along. And now, God looks and says, this is good. So a great thing, glorious thing. 
And now Genesis chapter 2. Here we go. Two, let me start with two truths about manhood and womanhood according to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Again, these go-to passages when it comes to our understanding of men and women. Here is two truths regarding manhood and womanhood. Number one. A very friendly truth, even culturally friendly, not controversial, but it's rooted in the Bible. That's the point we want to make. Men and women are created essentially equal. Men and women are created by God essentially equal. And so to say that in a a way that our culture would say it, men and women are equals. And that has been a struggle in our nation, but it is is not much of a struggle anymore. Most accept that truth, that men and women are equals. Men and women are created essentially or ontologically equal. In other words, we're we're speaking about, uh, about fundamental, central nature of being. And when it comes to that... Men and women are completely and totally equal. In other words, in in every way that really matters, men and women are equal. In the way that determines worth, um, value, and identity, there is no difference between men and women. Equal in the sight of God. And we get that from Genesis 1.27. That's where that truth is from. Genesis 1, 27. Remember, male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. God has made us men and women. And both men and women are image bearers of God. Because men and women are both image bearers of God. Therefore, men and women have equal worth, equal value, equal dignity before God. Men are not superior to women. And women are not superior to men. Chauvinism would teach that men are superior to women. Feminism would teach that women are superior to men. But the Bible says human equality. Men and women are equals. Remember Thomas Jefferson? First line of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And what was the very first one? That all men are created. That's a good word created all men are created equal okay that understanding of human equality between men and women this first truth that we're acknowledging that is not made up by human beings that is revealed to us from god it is written here and it is written here okay god has written that truth on our hearts in other words Okay, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you believe the Bible is true or not, whether you believe in God or not, there is a certain amount of of understanding and there's a certain amount of truth that is available to everyone on this planet. And it is because we have a conscience, it's because we have an understanding of what is right and what is wrong. We, We have an understanding that there is something greater, that there is a God. We have truth that has been written on our hearts. It's incomplete. But we have truth that's written on our hearts. And so we conclude, you know, there is equality here between men and women. But it's God's truth written on our hearts and made plainly clear in this book, his holy Bible. So human equality is not man's idea. Human equality is God's idea. Whether you're a man or woman, you're both image bearers of God. 
We see that in Genesis chapter 1. Whether you're a man or woman, both are given moral responsibility. We see that. Man or woman, both accountable to God. We are both, men and women, the objects of God's love and the objects of God's grace. When it comes to how God treats men and women, how God looks upon men and women, He looks upon them as equals and He treats them as equals. God does not favor men. God does not favor women. God favors mankind. Loves men, loves women, extends His grace to all. We just stop the sermon now because we're all on the same page. This is good. This, this agrees with our culture, but, but we've got to keep going. Okay? We've got to keep going and see what God's Word has to say. There's more about manhood and womanhood. So here's where people begin to leave. That said, that said, and this is, this is crucial. This is really important. Being equal does not necessitate being the same. Being equal does not necessitate being the same. Men and women are created distinct. Men and women are created very differently. You see this in little boys and little girls, even. I know there's nature, there's nurture. Apart from nurture, you see this in young boys and young girls. I can testify to this. Up until about a year ago, all, all we had was boys in the Myers household. Four crazy boys. Peyton, Brady, Jackson, Blaze. And it was very clear to me that they were different. That they were unique. And then, a year ago, this little girl comes along. Here comes Avery. Now we've got this girl who is in contrast to her brothers and she is completely and totally different. I've had to learn how to understand and relate to her. I took her out a couple weeks ago and we went to uh, the store together and I'm walking her through the store and I'm, I'm doing these tests with her. Right? I'm seeing how she reacts to things because I know how her brothers reacted to these things. And so, for example, no joke, we pull up to this big display of all of these movies, right? So all these DVD cases and, and all these. And I know which ones my boys would point to, right? There's, there's a gun, right? There's a, a horse, okay? There's a, a battle scene, okay? Here's a tank, there's a baseball bat. I mean, I know, and, and there are certain things that they gravitate toward. Okay, there was one, one movie here that was all pink, pink with a, a princess on the cover. And so I walked up, and sure enough, what does Avery point to? Right, she is pointing to this pink DVD. I watch her walk around our house, and she carries herself very differently than my boys carry themselves. As a general rule, she holds toys. My, my boys hit toys. This is how they just function differently in our home. My wife's given her these little dolls. And, and, and she, what she does is she goes up and she picks these dolls up off the ground. This one, she, she picks them up and then she holds them up to her head. And then she tucks her head in. And then she talks baby talk to them. And then she puts them down in her little play stroller. My boys do not do that. 
The other day I came outside and they're dressed in armor in my front yard. They have cut up cardboard boxes and paper bags and plastic bags and they've gathered sticks and here they are in this array in in my front lawn and they are dressed looking like they are ready for battle. I follow them out to our field. We live on a little over an acre and they have dug a bunker into the ground. Like, boys, you know we live in Roseville. This isn't South Sacramento. We don't need to worry about, right, intruders here. And then I begin to ask them, you know, what is it that you're doing and why are you doing this? And what are they doing? They're preparing for battle. Just in case someone comes down the street with a gun, you know, we're ready. We've got the sniper tower. You know, Jackson's up there. He's got the gun. It's manned. Okay, these two are going to be in the bunker, you know, and on and on. Even just here. You can't make this stuff up. I'm sitting here with Jackson at the beginning of worship here, and we're singing songs, and I look down. He's got one of those little green army soldiers that's tucked under his shoelaces. He's in a prone position, and he's aiming the gun out from his toe. And I just look at it, and I started laughing while I'm singing the song, because here's this little army guy tucked under his shoelaces aiming out. And I just bent. I said, Jackson, I, said, I, I was cracking. I said, I said, what are you doing? Why did, why did you do that? And he looks up at me straight face and says, to protect my shoe. <laughs> just different right all right that makes sense of course very very different and there is a reason there is a reason that god makes men and women different that's what we find from god's word see we live in a culture that believes that that if you're going to say that two are equal then they need to be the same And in our culture, when we say that men and women are equal, our culture wants to say so they need to be the same. Therefore, a man man can do anything a woman can do. A woman can do anything a man can do. And we're trying to blur the distinction between men and women and say, no, really, there there are no essential differences. But what God makes very clear is that there are differences. And there is intention behind the differences. This is what we learn from God's word. So while at one level there is no distinction, at another level there is a distinction so significant that it determines role and function in the church and in the home. And you start using words like role in our day and age, and it's very offensive. It's very offensive. Don't tell me what to do. Don't say that I'm confined to this role i can do anything i want to do right i mean this is how we talk it's how i talk pride proud i can do anything this person can do and so you have men and women you have husbands and wives saying everything is up for grabs there there is no distinction we do not need to function differently the bible doesn't speak to this there are no defined roles whatever works best for us let's go to pragmatics let's go to practicality but the truth is that the bible speaks volumes and says listen men and women you are equal women you have nothing to prove to men women you are in a church where you have nothing to prove to the men in this church you are our equals However, there are distinct differences between men and women, and those distinct differences are there to determine role and function in the home and in the church. So the second truth, which is not as popular, is that men and women are not created functionally equal. Men and women are not created functionally equal. They are not economically equal, some have said. They are intentionally not the same because God has unique intentions for men and for women. In other words, men are superior to women at being men. 
women are superior to men at being women. This is what God's Word teaches. That God has made us distinct. God has made us differently. And the reason He has made us differently is that we are to complement one another. We are to draw alongside one another. And we function best when we live according to our design and according to our calling. Both which God makes very clear in His Word. So what that means is that God is most glorified. I mean, here's why we talk about this. If you're new, our desire is that God would be glorified. As Christians, our desire is that God would be glorified. As the church, our desire is that God would be glorified. As children of God, our desire is that God would be glorified. Just like a child wants to please his mom and dad, and wants to honor his mom and dad, and wants to love his mom and dad, we love our heavenly dad, we want to honor him, we want to live the way he calls us to live, and we want others to see how great our dad is, and how wonderful he is, and how gracious he is, and how amazing he is, and so we want him to be glorified is what that is called. And so if we have these truths about men and women in God's word, then God is most glorified when men and women understand. Understand their unique qualities and roles and function accordingly. In a nutshell, this is what the Bible says. Difference between men and women. First is that men are designed and called to humbly and lovingly lead in a God-glorifying direction. If you are a man, by God making you a man, this is something that he has said about how he has designed you and what he has called you to. And the way he has told you that is by making you a man. He has designed you and he has called you to humbly and lovingly lead in a God-glorifying direction. This is not chauvinism. There is no tolerance for chauvinism. This is not my way or the highway sort of leadership. This is not authority without accountability. This is not I get to do what I want to do and be inconsiderate and go where I want to go. It is humbly and lovingly leading what direction? In a God-glorifying direction. The biblical term that the New Testament brings up and attaches to this is headship. And Adam was head in the garden. He was head over his wife. He was head over his children. And then we get full disclosure in the New Testament of this teaching of what headship actually means and what God calls men to. Women, very different. Very different. Woman is designed and called to humbly and lovingly. So same words so far. Designed a certain way. And because you're designed a certain way, called a certain way. Designed and called to humbly and lovingly help lead in a God-glorifying direction. Man as head is designed to lead in a God-glorifying direction. Woman as helper is designed to help a man lead in a God-glorifying direction. This is what the Bible teaches, and it's rooted right here in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and full disclosure comes in the New Testament on this teaching. Theologically, this term is called complementarian. So you may hear that. If you're new here, you will hear that, that we are a church that is complementarian. And this is what we believe. We believe in gender-based distinction of roles. 
We believe that while men and women are equal, that God has created distinctions between men and women and that those distinctions are for roles and functioning a certain way in the church. This is, you'll see this manifested in many different ways. This is why we hold men very responsible in their households. This is why if there's an issue, if there's a problem, while culpability might be shared, we hold men primarily responsible and we call them to the mat and we ask them what's going on. This is why we're big on men loving their wives as Christ loves the church. This is why encouraging them to fight sin and to fight for their wives and to lead well and to work hard. This is why men are pastors in this church because this affects ecclesiology and Paul speaks to that about who should lead in the church and who can be in sub-leadership and on and on. It all goes back to the truth in Genesis chapter 2. That while men and women are created equal, there are distinctions between men and women and the distinctions that exist between men and women are there for a reason, friends. They're there on purpose by God. And his intention is that men and women should come together and complement one another, complementarian. The other team is egalitarian. We are not egalitarian. Egalitarian says there is no gender distinction that determines roles. It's just about gifts. So in other words, it's all up for grabs. Gender has nothing to do with it. Whether you're a man or a woman is irrelevant. We just look at what you're good at, what your gifts are, what your abilities are. So we can have a woman pastor, for example, who leads a church in a marriage. If the wears the pants, right? That's the phrase we use in our culture. If she wants to wear the pants, that's fine. Um, if she leads better, that's fine. If, he's, if she's better at leading and he's better at abdicating responsibility, go ahead. <laughs> this is what happens. We're going to see in the garden, right? Adam abdicates his responsibility, doesn't do what he's supposed to do. And so Eve, well-intentioned, tries to fill the gap and it does not go well. It doesn't go well because man failed to lead his family in a God-glorifying direction. Which is why God, when he comes back, looks for Adam. And says, Adam, where are you? I've got a problem with you. Because you have not done what I've called you to do. You have not been a good head for your family. We see this in the Trinity. We see this in the Trinity. In the Trinity as well. There is an essential equality and there is a functional inequality within the Trinity. We see that equality does not equal sameness. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Equal in power, equal in glory, equal in majesty. We all agree on that. Three persons, one God. But functionally, there is an inequality. In other words, you see the Son willingly and deliberately submitting to the will of the Father. And you see the Holy Spirit willingly and deliberately submitting to the will of Jesus and God the Father. And yet we don't look at those distinctions in their role within the Godhead, right? And say, oh, so they're not equal. And we must not do the same with manhood and womanhood. Men and women are equal. But... There are distinctions among men and women, and those distinctions are there for a reason. This does not, this does not compromise the dignity of men and women. Often when this biblical argument is brought up, you will hear things like a woman saying, Are you saying that he's better than me? We're not saying that. We're not saying that. Are are you saying that I'm not capable of leading? No, quite the contrary. 
I often look at marriages and say she would be a much better leader than he would. That's often. But we are not ruled by pragmatism. We are not allowed by God, especially in marriages, to live in ways that we think work best. We're called to live faithfully according to His Word. And so even if she is a natural-born leader, and he is not a natural-born leader, that does not permit him to abdicate his responsibility and for her to pick up the mantle, we need to fix him. And we need to go after him. And we need to call him. And we need to train him that he may lead his family in a God-glorifying direction. Then the question may come, are you saying that are you saying that we can't do what we want to do? Are you saying that we can't even do this if it works better for us? In other words, it works better for her to be the head and for him to be the helper. Don't you see that in a lot of marriages? You may be in a marriage right now where that's really, when you work it out practically, that's what's going on. She's the head, he's the helper. She's at work all day, she's putting food on the table, he's at the park with the little kids. He's helping her. She's the head. You say, well, it just works for us. Pragmatically. Practically. Are we saying that you, you can't do that? And the answer is no. But know this. If you do live that way, you are not obeying God. This is not honoring to God. You're working against His design. And you're working against his calling. And here's our concern as people who love you, as a pastor who loves you. And it won't go well for you. Maybe you'll have a season. Ultimately, and we'll get through this more as we get through Genesis chapter 3. Ultimately, it will not go well for you. And you know what? We want it to go well for you. We do. We want your marriages to do well. We want your families to be healthy. Want husbands to love their wives, want wives to respect their husbands. We want God to be honored. And if these are the things that we're after, and if these are the things that we want, then we must look to God's word and say, God, what does your word call us to? We don't want to disregard his teaching. We don't want to resist his call. We don't want to frustrate his design. If we do, it will not go well for us. We certainly don't want to follow our hearts. This is what we call each other to do. Just follow your heart. Do what your heart calls you to do. What do you think is best? Proverbs 28, 26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But he who walks wisely will be delivered. To walk wisely means to live your life and to make your decisions with your Bible in your hand. And to say, this is how I'm going to live my life, and this is how I'm going to design my family, and these are the decisions that we're going to make, and it's not going to be because of pragmatics, it's going to be because of God's holy word, and we're going to live faithfully to his word. So many details that we're not covering. I understand that. This is big picture. Big picture. What it means manhood and womanhood biblical manhood and biblical womanhood so let's look more specifically at men Ephesians chapter 5 you can open there we'll be there in just in, in just a second this word headship next week we'll look at wives as helpers but today let's look at husbands as heads remember man is designed 
and called to humbly and lovingly lead his family in a God-glorifying direction. You see this rooted in Genesis. Some of the details that you see in the creation account, you might dismiss and say they're not important, but the New Testament authors look back and say they're very important. Man was created first. That's significant. It's important in determining how they're going to function as a married couple. We see that man was created first. We say that the woman was created from the man. The woman was created for the man. The woman was brought to the man. We see that when sin comes to the garden, even though it is the woman who sins first, it is, it is God holding the man accountable and calling him to the mat. In the New Testament, the term for this leadership that is rooted in the creation account is headship. Kephali is the Greek word, and it means authority coupled with responsibility. It is authority coupled with responsibility. If you are a husband, God said you are the head of your wife, 1 Corinthians 11, 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. Friends, this isn't up for grabs. We've got at least one working out what it means. But we can't get around the Scripture's clarity. That a husband is the head of his wife. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. So it's authority coupled with responsibility. In other words, God gives a husband authority. But he gives him authority for a reason. Not just for the sake of authority. It's not a declaration from God that man is superior. And that's why he gives him the authority. He gives him the authority to carry out the responsibility. The authority is for something. Remember, so he creates Adam. He creates him first, and he gives him this authority. Remember, he uses the word dominion. Okay, he gives him authority over the, 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 this kingdom that he has, of this land. And he says to Adam, you are in charge. Okay, rule over this and rule over this well. Then he gives Adam a responsibility, right? Take care of this land. Tend to it. And then he gives him a wife. Take care of this wife. He's going to give him children. Take care of these children. We see in the creation account that the knowledge was given to Adam. The teaching was given by God to Adam. And Adam was expected to pass that on to his wife. To read her the Bible. To pray for her. To say, this is what God says. This is what the truth is. To love her and protect her in that way. And then again we see in Genesis 3 that God comes to Adam. And remember what God's beef with Adam is? He doesn't tell Adam that his sin will get there. He doesn't tell Adam that his sin was eating the fruit. Eve's sin was eating the fruit. And God says, Adam, this is your sin. And this is why the ground is cursed, because you did this. And do you remember what he says? He said, you listened to the voice of your wife. That is not God saying men should not listen to their wives. In this case, in this case, though, the man's wife was engaged in a conversation with the enemy. The enemy was speaking lies. Adam knew they were lies. And rather than saying anything, he listened to the voice of his wife. The entire fall happened on an occasion of the husband abdicating his headship. We'll look at that in two weeks. This was the beginning of the fall. He abdicated his responsibility And his wife was looking, saying, well, it looks good. And this guy says it's good. 
And Adam had truth from God, and he should have stepped between his wife and Satan. And he should have said, these are lies, and this is truth. And he didn't. Instead, he listened to the voice of his wife, and God comes and finds him in the garden. And says, the course of human history has changed because of that fatal mistake. The biblical reality, the biblical design, the biblical calling of headship right here in the garden. And I think it's expressed most clearly in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25 and following. So let's jump ahead here to the New Testament articulation of of man's responsibility. And we're going to get to four practical applications of what this means. Husbands to be heads. Young single men someday when you're husband, what it will mean for you to be a head. Just four practical applications rooted in in Ephesians 5. Let's start to read here. Husbands who are also heads, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives. It is sad that when we hear things like headship, and we hear things like husbands are in a position of authority in their marriages, that it it conjures up oppressive images. And we think of men wielding their authority in wicked ways, as many have. And God does not permit this. The authority that a husband is given, the position of headship that God has put a husband in, his purpose and reason is that husbands may love their wives. That wives may be the most loved people on the planet because they've been given a husband who has been called by God and designed by God to love her. This is God's design. This is God's calling. And this is the call in us who are husbands. This is the call that God has placed on our lives. He has made us heads over our wives and over our families that we may love them and To help us understand how we're to love our wives. God says, look at Jesus. That's why Jesus, the church is called, we are called his what? His bride. He is our husband. We are his wife. We belong to Jesus. So we look, the parallel, the mystery here of husband and wife and Christ and the church. And so husbands want to know how to love their wives. And so they look at how Jesus loves the church. And God says in the same way, in the same way, not love your wives the way Jesus loves the church. Husbands, you can't do that. You cannot atone for her sin. You cannot cleanse her from the stains of her sin. You cannot sanctify her unto perfection. That is what Jesus can do. Some husbands try to be Jesus to their wives, and some wives expect their husbands to be Jesus, which is a crippling expectation. (laughs) They are not your Lord, though we would like to be. (laughs) They are not your savior and they are not your treasure. 
And they cannot, your husband cannot fulfill for you what Jesus Christ alone can fulfill. And he cannot do for you what Jesus Christ alone can do for you. Some husbands try to be a savior to their wife. They try to be lord over their wife. They try to be their wife's greatest treasure. And that is not their place. Some wives look to their husbands more than they should look to Jesus. And they expect their husbands to be perfect. Or they expect them to to meet all these needs which are going to be met according to the riches that are in Christ Jesus. And not their husband. They put too much of a burden on their husbands. What Paul is saying about headship is that husbands love your wives in the same way that Christ loves the church. In other words, love your wives with the same sacrificial intensity with which Jesus loves the church. So, man, what is the degree of our love to be? It is to the degree that Jesus loves the church. What is the the nature of the way we love our wives? It is to be sacrificial. What did Jesus do? What is the first thing that Paul draws attention to? He gave himself up for the church. So what are husbands called to do? They're called to give themselves up. He goes on. In the same way, verse 28, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. So he says two things. Husbands, this is how you love your wives. In the same way that Jesus did with the sacrificial intensity that Jesus loves the church. And then then he also tells us, husbands, love your wives the way you love your own bodies. It it should almost be instinctual. Everyone, unless there is some sort of an emotional or mental breakdown, everyone cares for their own body. It is our nature to nourish our body, to cherish our body, which he's going to bring out. He says, in the same way that we are committed to self-preservation, men, that's how we should love our wives. That's how we should care for our wives. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but what do we do? But nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So he says, husbands, heads, this is how you are to wield your authority. You are to wield your authority to love your wives. How do you love your wives? To the sacrificial intensity, to the degree to which Jesus loves the church. And you should love your wife in the way that you care for your own body. And the two words that he uses that we'll unpack practically is nourish and cherish. Everyone nourishes and cherishes their body. To nourish means to feed. To cherish means to keep warm is literally what the Greek word is saying. And we all do that. If you're out in the cold, you do something to keep yourself warm. If you're hungry, you get something to eat. If you're thirsty, you get something to drink. If you need shelter, you go and find shelter. And these are all this is instinct. This is what we do as human beings. And God says, men, you should be thinking so little about your own needs that your goal is to meet hers. That you nourish and cherish your wives husbands this is our duty and it is our delight it is our duty and it's our delight it's what we must do but it's what we want to do Lord willing it is what we enjoy doing for a man who loves Jesus and loves his wife He doesn't need to be prodded into nourishing and cherishing his wife, right? It is a delight. It is a pleasure to serve her in that way. 
So a godly head does this. He figures out what is necessary to lead himself, his wife, and his children in a God-honoring direction with no thought to what the personal cost or toll will be. That's in the same way, loving your wives as Christ loves the church. Husbands, we are to love our wives with no thought to the personal toll or cost it will take on us. Well, if I love her like that, I'm going to have to give this up. No thought to that. Well, if I love her like this, or if I love her in spite of that, if I love her like that, that's going to take an emotional toll on me with no thought. It is your duty and it is your delight. Gals, you know that as men were, you've heard that men are called to take initiative and you've heard that men are called to make decisions, but you also know that many of us really struggle with making decisions. We call it dragging our feet. Many times, honestly, many times the reason that we as men struggle with making the decisions that we need to make isn't because we don't know what the right decision is. To give you that insight. It's not that we're just trying to figure out what to do. We'll say that way beyond when we figured out what we're supposed to do. But we're trying to figure out, here's our sinfulness. We're trying to figure out how to do what we're supposed to do and lessen the personal cost and toll that it will take. We want to do it and have it not be so painful. We want to do it and not have it be so much work. We want to do it and have it not compromise our reputation or embarrassment or whatever it is. We want to do it that will require little and have a big payoff. It's sinful, but we can be guilty of that as men. But we're called to, if it's in the same way as Jesus, to give no thought to the personal toll and cost that it will be to us. And see, we'll make excuses and say, well, but if I'm not healthy and if I'm not this and if I don't have my hobbies and if I don't have my friends and I'm not going to be well equipped to serve her and love her. But the truth is, is that husbands, we exhaust ourselves for our wives and we trust Jesus to meet our needs. And we trust Jesus to to fill us and to pour into us. That's not to say that we can't have these other relationships and we can't have hobbies and we can't do this and we can't do that. But if that compromises how we lead and love our wives and those things go and we say, Christ, I'm yours, fill me, help me, give me the strength, lead me, that I may love her the way you've called me to love her. Very practically now. Very practically, looking at those two words, nourish and cherish, and quickly, four uh, practical applications that are good for all of us as, as husbands, as, as heads of our households, for those of you who are single men who one day will be, to think now and to plan now. Don't say, when I get married, I'll start figuring this out. Because your poor wife will sit there while you figure it out for years like my wife did. Don't put her through that. Start thinking through this right now. Number one, what does a a head do who wants to nourish and cherish his wife? Number one, it may be surprising. Submit to authority. Submit to authority. The reason I say that is because when we think of being an authority, we tend to think free from accountability. And that is not the biblical understanding of authority. So, men, if you're going to wield authority and if you're going to have authority, you must be under authority. The Bible knows no such thing as a Christian who is not under authority. You are under the authority of Christ. And if you're in a church, you are under the authority of your leaders in the church. 
You are accountable to others. And this goes terrible when men have authority and try to exercise authority, and yet they're not under authority, and no one holds them accountable. So a godly man who wishes to be a godly head of his home must make sure that he is under authority. This is why a young gal is in a dangerous place if she has a husband who even appears to be godly, who's going to become her head, and yet he doesn't want to commit to a church and submit to authority. The risk is that he doesn't fulfill his responsibility, he doesn't lead her in the way that he should, and there's no one there to hold him accountable. Men, we must be under authority. You're under authority. I'm under authority. We must be held accountable. We must have lots of windows that are rolled down in our lives for others to look in and call us on what we need to get called on. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Don't you love how God says things so clearly? He doesn't, God never says in his words, you know, I've got a suggestion for you. Got something for you to chew on. Think this over. See what you think. No pressure. Get back to me when you can. God doesn't speak to us like that. He says things simply and clearly. Men and women, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. So number one, submit to authority as well. I hope this is helpful. Heads, work hard for your wives. Work hard for your wives. Men, you know, we're prone to laziness. We see work as, a, as, a, as an evil means to a good end. Work is a good thing. Men, you have been designed for a certain kind of hard work. And we are to work hard. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, again, we'll look at it, it's been difficult. And it has not come easy. And men, it's most likely not going to become easy to you. And our tendency is to be what Proverbs calls a sluggard. And it's to be lazy. And it's to abdicate our responsibility. And it's to make excuses like Proverbs talks about the lion in the streets. Right? So there's a man in his room. And he needs to go out and go to work. Or turn in some applications. Or get busy. And he's crouched in the house. And what is his excuse? There's a lion in the streets. And his wife looks out and she says, we live in Roseville. There's no zoos here. There's no wild animals, right? It's just a, it's in his imagination. But it's difficult and it's hard. And what if? And Well, man, we need to be the lion in the streets. We need to be the lion in the streets. And we need to be willing to do whatever it takes to, to work hard for our wives. We're real concerned with just working just barely enough so that needs are met. Got to make sure I get my three days off. The Bible, they're working six days, taking one day off. Got to make sure I've got time for uh, this and for that and for that friendship and for this guy time and for these hobbies. Well, not if it's keeping you from working as hard as you need to work to provide for your family. First Timothy 5.8 says that He who doesn't provide for the needs of his family is worse than an unbeliever. He's denied the faith. 2 Timothy 2 says that we are all to work hard like soldiers, like athletes, like a farmer. We're to work hard. We're to determine what it is that our wives need 
and we're to work hard to make sure that our wives have exactly what they need. And that's going to require a lot of hard work. So men as heads, we must be willing to work hard for our wives. Number three, to keep her warm. It's literally what the word cherish means here. A good husband and a good head is called to keep his wife warm, to keep her warm physically, to keep her warm uh, emotionally, to keep her warm spiritually. It means that, men, we have a role to, to nurture our wives, to be gentle with them, to be considerate to them, to show them compassion, to engage them, to pursue them. This is what it means practically to cherish our wives. And we don't cherish our wives. We're abdicating our responsibility. It's popular for men to get the hard work down and then to abandon the cherishing and say, well, what do you want from me, right? I'm doing enough. I'm putting food on the table. I work all day. All I want to do is come home and watch the game and put my feet up, bring me a beer, bring me a remote control. I've paid my dues. And this is not husbandry. This is not headship. There's still some exhausting left to be done. And so a godly head will engage his wife and he will pursue his wife and he will run after his wife. And he will, as First Peter 3, 7 says, he will be considerate of his wife. He will live with her in an understanding way, showing honor to her since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. It means that husbands, we don't just provide for our wives physically. We provide for our wives emotionally. We provide for our wives spiritually. Many of these things do not come as easy for us, but we must learn how to do this. Because we're called to, as we do for our own bodies, we're called to nourish our wives, to cherish our wives. Man, if you get married and if you have children, you'll see that that, that your wife is going to be nurturing and nurturing and nurturing. And if you have little children like my wife does, she's going to be nurturing these children. It is your job to nurture her, to keep her warm. To make sure that she has everything that she needs to, as Proverbs says, to build her home and not tear it down. It's our responsibility. Those are the first three. Now the last four. Submit to authority. Work hard for her. Keep her warm. And then number four, I would say, practically speaking, fight for her. Work hard for her. Keep her warm. And fight for her. Doing this... I come to understand more and more and more is difficult. I find that my sin tempts me to abdicate responsibility. I find that many things don't come easy. I find that many things don't come naturally. I find that my wife is so often in one way or another under spiritual attack. And as good heads, we're called to fight, called to fight for our wives. All of us are called to fight, First Timothy 6, fight the good fight of faith. This life is a battle. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be painful. You're living in a war zone. All of us are. It's no different for you, husbands. In fact, there's a specific fight that God has put in you that we need to fight. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Husbands, heads, men, we are called to fight 
for our wives. So we've got to understand that fighting is a good thing. Fighting is a good thing. It's a great thing. There's nothing wrong with little boys who are nice and little boys who are sweet and little boys who have good manners and little boys who are compliant. But if that means also that they think that fighting is bad, we've done a disservice to our young men. God has, and like my illustration showed earlier, I see this all the time with my boys. As a man, God has put a fight in you. He's put in you a desire to struggle, a desire to battle, a desire. There's a reason you like the movies you like. He's put in you a desire to win, a desire to defeat, a desire to protect, a desire to be physical, a desire to use whatever means may be necessary. Okay, we go back to the distinction between men and women. God has created you a certain way for a certain reason. And if you're married, it's because God was going to give you a wife and you are to fight for her and to protect her. That may mean physically. That may mean that if in the middle of the night you hear a strange noise, that you don't push her out of the bed to go find out what's down the hall. It does mean that you grab whatever you got, (laughs) bat, gun, knife, and you pursue because you want to stand between your wife and harm. But do not forget this. There is a greater battle that is going on, and there is a battle that is going on regardless of whether or not there is a physical threat to your wife, and it is a spiritual threat. 1 Peter 5 tells us that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he will devour. And your wife is on his list. And through culture, and through lies, and through this world that we live in, there is constantly things that are not true that your wife, among others, is being bombarded with. And so you must take up spiritual arms like prayer and God's word, and we've got to engage in the battle and fight for our wives with the the ferocity which we would fight for her physically. To be ferocious in our protection of our wives spiritually. It means, men, that we pray for our wives. Some of your wives might like you to pray with them. You should ask them today. Some wives enjoy that. some, Some wives don't. You should say, would you like it if I would pray with you? She might look at you like you're crazy. She may say, I thought you'd never ask. It may be a very practical way. Pray with your wife. At the very least, pray for your wife. You can pray for her. It's how you fight for her. Incidentally, we have a book that can help you with that. Water of the Word. We sell it in our library. And it's just taking the Psalms. And it is applying them for a husband to pray for his wife. Man, we should be ferocious with this and be going before God on behalf of our wives. It means taking God's word to our wives. Like Jesus does with us, he washes us with the word. We should wash our wives with the word. It may mean that your wife would like you to read scripture to her. It may mean that you're watching and you know what, where she's under attack, where she's anxious, where she's worried, where she's fearful. 
where she's experiencing pain. And it means that you then go to God's Word and you determine what God's Word has to say and you minister to her with God's Word. All this in a nutshell is simply this. Jesus died for your wife and He calls you to die for yours. Husbands, He calls us to die for our wives. Not not in a a sin-atoning, sin-cleansing way. But, but men, we must be prepared not only to die physically for our wives, but as good heads, we must be prepared to give ourselves up daily in such a way that it is a sort of death to us. Over and over and over again. This is headship. This is what God has called us men or husbands, what He's called us to do for our wives. An impossible task, by the way. Just impossible. If you're, you're writing notes and you're ready to go out and like do this, you're going to fail. I mean, just will. I, I will too. Today I'll fail. Most likely today. My thoughts, my words, and my behavior, I'm going to fail. It doesn't remove the responsibility. What it does is it turns me to the gospel. So I'm going to fail. Men, you're going to fail. And when we do sin, we remember that there's an advocate for us. There's a propitiation for us. And we turn to Jesus and we turn to the gospel. And we remember that we can have forgiveness of sins. And we can be put back up on our feet, dust shaken off, and put back into the battle. We turn to the gospel where we find forgiveness for our failures. Some of you men, you need to repent today big time for just everything before. Because a turning point needs to happen. And there's big repentance that needs to take place. And there is in Christ forgiveness. And not only that, but because of the power of the gospel, there is great help and strength to do what God calls us to do. It may be difficult. It may fall down quite a bit. It's an uphill battle. It may feel like we're in in a pit with no ladder clawing at the sides, or maybe a lot of work to do, and it may take a lot of time. But in the gospel, there is provided for us the grace to do it. And so we answer God's call. We answer it as our duty and as our delight, and we turn to the gospel for the grace to do it. We're going to share communion together, and when we... When we come together on Sunday and we eat this bread and we drink this juice and we remember the body and the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice can affect us in so many ways. We're called to remember what Christ has done. Some of you, there's conviction today. Some of you, there's encouragement today. Some of you, there is a challenging today. But whatever it is, we, we fix our eyes now on the cross. We look to Jesus. We look there for forgiveness. We look there and find conviction. We look there for strength. But whatever it is, we all look to the cross now as a family. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the cross. Thank you, God, that the end of this message, at the end of these kind of challenges, is not a a moralistic do better, but that it is a high calling, God, that you've given us, a responsibility that you've given us, in which we will fail apart from your love and your grace. So turn us now, especially us men who are in this room, turn us as those who who have failed 
some who are failing, and turn us to the cross. Father, some of us say, forgive us for our grievous sin. And we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us and that you would, by your Holy Spirit, empower us and give us what we need, the power we need to faithfully turn to you. For the sake of your glory, God, and for the sake of our wives. I pray that this church would become a place where wives are loved by their husbands. Loved by their husbands in a way that reminds us of the never give up, no matter what love Jesus has for his bride. We pray these things and hope for these things and ask for these things in the name of and because of and for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.